Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Becky. And this is How to Not Get Killed. What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? What's up? We're back with part two. Fuck yeah, we are. Yeah. I would say I'm excited, but I'm not excited because I'm angry. I know. And I said to you earlier, I was like, I'm excited for you to like hear about it so that I'm not alone in like my spiraling thoughts. In your like shit stew pot. Yeah. Like, and just going on and on and on where I'm just like, what? Becky just had a moment before we started this episode where she's like, what is it? What was it in her phone book? LLL401KE. Like, it's gotta be. And like, yeah. I went, I went down the spiral. Yeah. And I was like, just you wait. I'll go down the spiral later. Because we have so many more players that are uh, gonna come into this I, I i don't even know how that's possible i know i okay. know all right it's honestly it's overwhelming it's <laughs> it's overwhelming <laughs> props to vanessa brown for like organizing this into a book and also then maintaining sanity yeah that's the, i think the biggest yeah. props goes out to that is like absolutely because i we've only i personally have now only heard part one my yeah. sanity is out the window Mm-hmm. it's gone and like guys part i mean we're well aware part one was almost two hours like there's so much it's true so much in this case so yeah for the people vanessa brown and michael arnfield that have looked into this for years yeah holy cow yeah this is also why circling back to like several episodes ago when we talked about would we ever solve a case no i could not no. like i would be so <laughs> obsessive no and that's that's the thing is yeah. i just got obsessive off off of like one part yeah in part one i can't do it yeah no yeah so no for me it's a no for me mm-hmm. dog so thank you yeah to <laughs> vanessa brown for going and doing all of the, this and investigating and interviewing people and spending like so much of your time to put this together for us because it's such like i said it's such an amazing book to read and it really lays out what information we have now mm-hmm. and what we have to go on yeah and again she's just a really talented writer please go and read her book it's amazing guys yep link will be in our show notes yeah and and again like i said i'm not covering all of this even though like <laughs> it's two parts and both parts are going to be long but god i um, need to know what you're there is <laughs> so yeah there is so much that i'm not including one because again like go and read her book like she did all the work i'm just <laughs> retelling parts yeah. of it um but uh yeah there's just there's so much so we're going to get into part 2 okay go start and and see how crazy Becky and I feel after this. If it's if it's any worse than how I currently feel, <laughs> I have to go to the hospital. <laughs> like I'm good. I know. And I'm feeling so good right now. <laughs> so just quick recap. Um Oh yeah. Oh we Which I mean you yeah. should have listened to part one, but if it was a while ago, I'm just gonna give you a recap. Okay. Jackie English, fifteen year old girl, working two jobs, um, you know, supporting her little brother and her mom, and her mom is working as well. And she worked at a restaurant off the 401 called the Metropolitan. On October 4th, she did not come home from her shift. She left her shift at 10 p.m. She did not come home. Six days later, five days later, her body was found in Big Otter Creek. Mm-hmm. There were loads of witness accounts of seeing her leaving work and being picked up being picked up on the overpass the 401 overpass on wellington road in a car different descriptions of the car but that there was definitely a male driver possibly two or three males in the car yeah um 
and her family searched. They the police found her body on October 9th and after her body was found, there were even more people who came forward about seeing Jackie in the days leading up to her disappearance mm-hmm. and on the day of her disappearance. And there's a lot of information from different people. And as we know, sometimes people are trying to be helpful when they're coming yep. forward with witness statements and things like that. But a lot of them can be contradictory because sometimes people don't remember things as well as they think that they do. And in the case yeah. of... Marilyn Hurd, one of Jackie's friends, there's a lot of speculation about her inserting herself into the investigation yeah. and, and having maybe some not truthful information and having a lot of not so truthful some made up information maybe to try and again, in someone's mind they might think that they're helping the police. Yeah. If they're giving them information, but it's only helping if that information is true. Helping. <laughs> and coherent, yeah. you know. So that's kind of where we left off. Stress. Oh, and they found the pencil crayons. Yes, and they, they had found her shoes as well as like they did other find articles her... of clothing in yep. different locations. They so. found her shoes very yes. close to where Georgia Jackson's body was found yes. in 1966. They found her clothes 20 minutes away from where her body was found. And then a few weeks later, a gentleman in Old South found some pencil crayons with Jackie's name on one of them very close to her old house on mm-hmm. Elmwood. Yeah. So there are some f- weird things going on. Breadcrumbs just all over the city, everywhere. Yeah. So I'm going to introduce you to Elizabeth Harrison. Okay. She goes by Betty, so I'll, I'll be calling her Betty Harrison. Okay. At the time of Jackie Jackie's murder, Betty Harrison and her husband, Verdon Harrison, lived on Elgin Street, which is in the East End, mm-hmm. with their son, Richard. Okay. Richard was 20 years old. He had an intellectual disability, which meant that he participated in counseling and remedial classes at London's Children's Psychiatric Research Institute. Okay. So CPRI for, for oh, short. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, I know. I'm I didn't like, even put the acronym together because I, yeah. No, I know. I know. Because I've only ever referred to it as CPRI. CPRI. Yeah. I read it as CPRI and then later it spelled out in full and I was like, oh, I never even knew what it stood for. And that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so Becky and I both had training yes. in CPRI. Yeah. But uh, but at the time in London, there was like a CPRI, like institute. Yes. Where people... I think it's is still there. Is it still there. around? Yes, I believe it's still there. Um, I don't know if it's still operating at the same kind of capacity it was before. Okay. But I have personally supported people that have been in and out of CPRI. Okay. Okay. Yes. So yeah, so at this time, or, or, you know, years before this, Richard, Betty's son, would have been going to classes there. Okay. They also had a daughter, Sharon, who um, didn't live with them. Sharon lived with her grandmother, still in London, but just didn't live with them. Okay. We're not sure why. Um, on October 7th, Jackie's picture was in the paper and it was like everywhere. Yeah. And it not even just this day, but like in many, many days after this, um, especially after her body was found. Mm-hmm. She was kind of like the major focus. Of course. For the media. Yeah. Um, as was the investigation, like the hidden witness program, like all of this stuff was going Everything. on at this time, right? Betty Harrison saw Jackie's picture in the newspaper on October 7th, two days before Jackie's body was found. She recognized her as the girl who had served them dinner at the Metropolitan on Friday, October 3rd. Okay. So the day before she went missing. Betty and Verdon eventually went into the police and they gave them information like about that night because they were like, oh, we don't know if it'll help, but we'll just tell you what we saw. Yeah. So the Harrison family said while they were having dinner at the Met that night, two men came in to talk to Jackie. 
According to them, one gentleman asked the other, did you tell her? And then turned to Jackie and said, are you going? We'll make it tomorrow then. Betty said Jackie seemed so upset by this interaction that she dropped a glass of water and it like smashed everywhere, I guess. Like she was just like taken aback, I guess. Okay. Um, then one of the men put a penny on the counter and said to Jackie, this is all you're worth. Okay. So I guess they were like sitting at the counter, like you could be served at the yeah. counter and they just like overheard this conversation. Um, the police asked if they would sit down with a sketch artist to create a composite of this person that they saw or the the one of the one of the gentlemen i think they said okay at first i think they said it was two two gentlemen yeah but to be honest like the story does change a bit yeah and this is from betty and verdon's perspective yeah okay so this composite For a second, sketch, I thought it was i thought it was betty and verdon that said that to her and i was just like what <laughs> no no they no came one, of, to admit sorry, just... one of the guys like okay yes yeah. yes so they would just whatever interaction she had with them it apparently like shook jackie a bit yeah so the composite sketch that the harrisons created was printed in the london free press on october 19th okay we'll fast forward to november 14th betty receives a phone call to their house after dinner she heard a man on the other end of the phone speaking with a high-pitched voice, like mm -hmm. trying to disguise his voice, threatening her, telling her she'd better not go back and speak to the police again. He finished with, we'll be watching you. Oh. So she called okay. the police. Yeah, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> he I was like, don't call the so. police. And she would like, call the police. She was Good. like, I actually have them on the line. Yeah, Can you choice. just let them know? <laughs> So, uh, in The Forest City Killer, she says it was Dennis Alsop who came, but in Murder City, it just says it was another police officer, so I'm not entirely sure. It does sound like something Dennis Alsop would do, but yeah. apparently a police officer sat in an unmarked car parked at the end of the Harrison Street until 6.45 the next day. Sounds very dennis -esque. It sounds like something Dennis yeah. would do, like to wait all night. While also sitting in the car, like solving 47 other yeah, crimes. Yeah, exactly. Like, like all shocked. his case files and like <laughs> everything, right? Yeah. Um, until 6.45 a.m. the next day when Betty received another menacing phone call. And I'm actually okay. going to read this one to you because it's a bit longer and I yeah. and I didn't... It's not super long. It's just I didn't want to... Yeah. Again, I didn't want to paraphrase and it's like very scary. Also, odd choice on making a threatening call to like alter your voice. I feel like going high pitch is a very uh, interesting route. Like if I'm going to call, I know. I'm going to be like, when I read that, this it's is like, Becky. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, hi, I wouldn't be like, you better not go to the police. I'm going to fucking kill you. Yeah. Like, like what? Is this Kermit the Frog? Like what's happening? <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting choice to make. Okay. So, right. okay. So the next call came the next morning and this is what it said. Okay. It says, I told you not to go to the police. You've been to the police. I saw you had the police over last night. Just what we told you not to do. I'm going to cut you up good and we will see what I'll do to your husband and kid. I'm going to get you real good. I am really going to enjoy this one. What I tell you this morning, I am really going to enjoy this, baby. It will not make any difference where you are or what you're doing. It will be when you least expect it. I like to fuck dead women and I'll do it with you when I'm through with you. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. That was the phone call. That was, that was the phone call. According okay. to, according to Betty. Okay. Which is a lot. I mean. A lot. Also, like, the, the ego for me is kind of like, I, I, 
I don't know what to make of this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll, dis- we'll, we'll discuss it throughout, okay. but obviously very alarming. Very. Yeah, so, I have thoughts. So okay. that was November 14th. The next day was November 15th. Yes. Now we're at December 7th. Okay. The Harrisons hear two loud bangs on their front door a few seconds apart. So it's like bang, they're like alerted, bang. and then like another bang. Verdon picks the phone up to call the police while Betty looks out the window to see a blue Ford with round taillights pulling out of their driveway. Round taillights, okay. That's that's the description. Yeah. No, I'm making the connection. To the square taillights. Yeah, for sure. Verdon didn't go to sleep that night. Like, naturally. I mean, yeah. I honestly stand. Fair enough. Um, It would be hard to sleep at that point. And so he was up all night and he heard another loud bang on their door at four in the morning. He ran to the door and opened it and no one was there. But he said he saw a Ford. He says it was either a Falcon, a Fairlane, or a Meteor drive past their house. Okay. I don't know if those are similar or not. I'd have to like see I don't pictures. know. I, yeah. I, I should have looked them up, but I, I, I know look. that someone else mentioned a Ford Falcon. Previously. the car yes. that stopped to pick up Jackie. And I believe later on someone else will mention a Ford Fairlane. Okay. As well. So yeah. they might, yeah. And I'm assuming they are like maybe similar looking if he's like it was one of these three cars. Yeah. December 11th. So a few days later. Betty's looking through her mail after work and she finds an envelope that has a card and it says, in deepest sympathy. And she's like confused because it's like a, like a condolences card. Like, yeah. She's like, well, she's why like, would well, I get this? No one I know has, yeah. Yeah. Inside was written, we'll be watching you. And a red ink stamp that said past due. Like on like a bill. Fucking asshole. Yeah. Instead of calling the police, Becky, um... Betty? Sorry. Okay, I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) This is actually, this is Becky, guys. This is, I did this, guys. This is, it's my story now. I'm looking at it. It looks, like, so similar to to Becky when I read it, like, quickly. Yeah. Becky with a Y. Honestly, it's it's not. It it can't be you. No, it definitely can't be. No. Uh, So instead of calling the police, maybe she was just like, I've had enough of this and, like, I don't want to... Egg it on more. Uh, yeah, I just want to, like, get on with my day. I don't know why she didn't call the police. But she took their dog, their 40-pound black lab, Cindy, for a car ride. Oh, my God. I love when I love when dogs have regular-ass names. Yeah, Cindy. Like, like you a, know like a lady. I love that. Like, yeah. just, like, a regular lady. <laughs> yeah. She was, a, she was a black lab. Um, So, Betty drove to Treasure Island. Yeah. Like, the, went shopping at the Metropolitan store. She went to where White Oaks Mall is today. Like I said, there was, like, department stores there. She just, like, went shopping. shopping. And then she decided to go home. She took the back roads home. Okay. Because <clears throat> it will be revealed later that she took this road often because there was a spot where she would stop to let Cindy out for like a run. Okay. It was called a dog park in one of the books, but I don't know if it was a dog park or just more like an open space where like people took their dogs. Likely, yeah. Um, And she left to head home around 6 p.m. So this is 6 p.m. on December 11th. Okay. So it would have been dark. Yeah. Just, just to clarify that, like, oh, 100%. At, at this yesterday place it was 545 and it was blackout. Yeah, this yeah. place in the world in London, Ontario in December past like 530. It looks like, like the depths of hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she stops off on um, the side of the road. Well, okay. So Vanessa Brown in the book basically says that, like, the story that Betty tells changes 
like from the first report to an eventual trial that happens. Okay. So she basically says, like, I tried my best to piece this narrative together. Okay. When I read it in Murder City, the narrative is definitely a bit different. Okay. So just everything yeah. that I read about this is coming from the perspective of Betty, and that's our only source. So it definitely could have happened differently. Okay. But basically, it says that Betty took Green Valley Road east and was approaching the intersection at Hubry Road. So this is like... Because I looked it up. So Green Valley is basically parallel to like Exeter Road. Okay. But it's like a few streets south and it's like a little... So basically if she was at Treasure Island, it looks like it was almost connected to that and it just went east, like a little side road. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And okay, yes. I think I know exactly. And if you kept going, you would hit Highbury. Yeah. Right before Hubry, this intersection she stops at, Hubry's like the street right parallel to Highbury before you would have hit Highbury. Yeah. So that's kind of where she is, just so you know where I'm talking about. Okay. I think I know exactly what you're talking about. So very, very close to, like, Treasure Island and all that. So again, like, even now, like, that area is still relatively undeveloped. Like, so in 1969, like, hugely undeveloped. Like, just farmlands, basically. Just open, yeah. So she stopped the car to let Cindy out for a quick run. She opened the passenger side door, Cindy got out, and a man jumped in her car. Oh, fuck. Betty quickly hit the gas and, like, swung left onto Hubry Road to try and, like, fling him out of the car, because I guess the door was still open, hoping, yeah, like, hoping he would fall out. She said there had been a can of candies on her seat, and the man, like, started hitting her with it. He eventually, at some point, like, he was trying to attack her, and she was still driving the car. He eventually took out a knife... And he started, like, slashing her with it. Like, he cut her face. What the fuck? Um, at some point, she hit a snowbank. Or she stopped the car. Again, it's, like, a bit jumbled. But yeah. eventually, he got out. He went around to the driver's side and, like, pushed her over. Um, and he started driving the car. And she tried to, like, keep him out of the car. But he eventually got in and, like, Where's overpowered Cindy? Cindy's her. Cindy's out in the field? Cindy's still outside of the car. So okay. she had chased the car. Um... Oh. And, like, he drove the car back south down Hubri from where they came, stopping a few times to, like, continue to attack her. So this is when Cindy's, like, chasing the car. But then eventually they drove too far off for Cindy to catch up with them. So I think she just stayed wherever she was. Okay. Don't worry. She comes back. Okay. Okay. So she said, um, Betty said at one point he became very, like, gentle with her and reached over and kissed her bleeding cheek that he had cut oh that's the creepiest thing ever and then she said that he like then flipped and he became like super violent and like manic again um and he would kind of it sounds like he would kind of go back and forth between like being gentle and then like attacking her and like slashing her and um when he was in this like violent state he would say things like i like to fuck a woman after she's dead so it kind of seems to line up with like the phone call she was getting yeah she said he seemed like he was like maybe on drugs or like had been drunk or something like that like he was obviously acting very like strangely aside from the attack he grabbed her breasts and he tore buttons off her pants like he was like groping her and stuff he turned the car around and drove back down hubri towards london he stopped the car on the side of the farm or on, the, or on the side of, like, a farm field. And yeah. Betty and the man, like, fought each other outside of the car. Like, and it's... She said there was another vehicle there. And she felt like he was trying to, like, get her into the other car. 
Oh, okay. And then Cindy shows up and she jumps oh, on yeah. him and bites his oh, leg and yeah, like Cindy. starts attacking him. Yes. Yes. And, like, I guess she got him really good because he gave up and just, like, limped back to the car. And Betty says he just, like, collapsed in the passenger seat. So she said, like, there she thinks someone else was driving. And and then, like, they drove off. She was obviously, like, beaten and, like, cut up at this point, And it was dark. But she says she thinks it was a dark Ford Falcon. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. So Holy she fuck. said okay. she took snow and she rubbed it on her wounds. Yeah. And then got back in the car and drove. So in Michael Arntfield's book, he said that she drove to the hospital. But in Vanessa Brown's book, For a City Killer, she says she drove home and then called the police. I'm going to go with that story because that comes up later. Which one? That she drove home? That she drove home first because people question why she did that. Yes, which is also interesting because given where they are, and I don't know if the OPP station was still at the spot that it's currently at, but I think it's been there since roughly this time, she would likely have to pass the OPP to get home. Oh, I don't know where the OPP station is. Right off of the 401, like parallel to where mm. all of this is. Hmm. Interesting. So maybe it, maybe it wasn't there at this time, but like... Or maybe she didn't know, or maybe fair, it was dark fair. or something, but... Yeah. Yeah, but no, that's that's... An interesting point. I didn't know that. She might have had to... Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not close enough. She wouldn't have taken that route then. Okay, yeah, I don't know. But well, it's, it's, it's closer than going to the hospital. That's for damn sure. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, I mean, yeah. just for anyone wondering how far the closest hospital would have been, like, you would have jumped on Wellington Road, which is the overpass where we talked about where Jackie yes. English was taken. And then you would have had to have driven maybe about 10 minutes... Maybe less, depending on traffic. Yeah. Because it was about 6, 6.30 six. at this time. Yeah. So, like, yeah, afternoon. about 10 minutes, I would say, um, to Victoria Hospital, where there is an emergency room. So, in Michael Arnfield's book, he says that she drove to Victoria Hospital and ran into the emergency room, like, bleeding and screaming and stuff. Yeah. Well, if she drove to the hospital and the OPP off- station is where it is, she would have certainly passed the OPP station before getting to the hospital okay maybe not to home though okay well in this version we're going with yes. she drove home okay she got home around six thirty, and she called the police okay she was then sent to the hospital like they took her to the hospital she was placed under 24-hour guard and then gave statements to another officer as well as dennis alsop during this time okay and she described the man as 29 to 30 years old 175 pounds Dark hair, a sallow complexion with a tooth missing or a dark tooth. Again, it was very dark, right? Mm -hmm. Um, He wore a leather jacket and brown gloves. He was taller than the car, slim, and then was was wearing no hat or glasses and he didn't have an accent. She said she believed it was the same voice that called her on the phone. Okay. So this is like the first description right after the incident. Um, Betty had five small cuts on the front of her right shoulder, three cuts and two scrapes on the back of her right hand, two small cuts on the back of her left hand, three scratches on the palm of her left hand and two on her right palm. She had five cuts on her right cheek and five cuts on her left leg. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Most of the cuts were superficial, but two or three of them were deeper. Um, and they were all, the deeper ones were all on the left side of her body. So they figured that that, those ones occurred when he was in the driver's seat. Yeah. Um, 
Betty remained in the hospital for 12 days. Okay. Cindy was featured in the paper. Oh, fuck yeah. As a hero. Oh, as the hero who saved her owner's life. There's like a cry. picture in the book I of like a it. police officer holding Cindy and like That's giving her a treat, awesome. whatever. Giving um, her a treat. Yeah, yeah, she gets all the treats in the world. You fucking go, Cindy. And and Richard Harrison says that Cindy was quite shook up after this incident. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's, like, yeah. so traumatic for, a, like, a pet to have to yeah. go through. Like, you know when oh, something's yeah. wrong, right? Oh, like, 100%. And then, for like, so for that to happen and then for Betty to go directly to the hospital and spend 12 days there, yes, yeah, Cindy's not going to be okay. No, 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 no. Like, that's the thing. It's like animals experience trauma just like we do. Yeah. If anything, you it's, know? like, weirder for them because they can't just be like, hey, so I'm going through a rough patch here, Well, guys. yeah, they don't know what's going on, right? Yeah. So, but Cindy was a hero and... And we love Yay Cindy. for Cindy. Honestly, we love Cindy. And dogs are the best guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to introduce you to Glenn Fryer. Okay. So Glenn Fryer was the principal at CPRI. Okay. He was married to Ruth Fryer. They had moved to London in 1955 from their hometown of Stratford. Okay. Um, and Glenn had gotten his position at CPRI in 1966. Okay. In February of 1968... Glenn and his family moved to be closer to CPRI into a house on Headley Drive, mm-hmm. which is kind of in like Oak Ridge area. It's very, very close to where Frankie Jensen and Jacqueline Dunleavy lived. Yes. They moved into their house one week after Frankie Jensen went missing. Okay. He had, Glenn Fryer had a history of being violent towards his wife, Ruth. She even reported him to the police once for rolling a car window up on her arm. Oh. And, like, apparently he really injured her. And there were, like, Fucking many asshole. other accounts of him, like, like beating her up, which what is really, really sad. After um, Betty's attack, she suffered from, like, paranoia, insomnia, yeah. depression. Naturally. Along with the physical pain she was experiencing, she also had scars all over her face. Okay. So she was, like, very reluctant to go anywhere or let anyone see her. Of course. Of course because yeah. you're, like traumatized yeah i mean that's terrible so she went to see a psychiatrist dr diane johnson whom she knew from richard's time at cpri because dr diane johnson worked at cpri she was technically a child psychiatrist okay um so she therefore worked for glenn fryer like glenn fryer was technically her boss okay um but basically how this all transpired is that betty worked as a receptionist at a chiropractic clinic for Dr. Harvey Murphy. And Dr. Harvey Murphy knew Diane Johnson and so did Betty in a way. So he was like, why don't you go to some counseling? Um, So he drove her to these counseling appointments. Dr. Harvey Murphy did, her boss. And Dr. Harvey Murphy was also friends with Glenn Fryer and um, Dorothy. Thea mm-hmm. Murphy, which is Dr. Murphy's wife. I know there's a lot of names going on here, That's but basically like Betty's boss, Dr. Murphy, his wife, yeah. was rumored to be having an affair with Glenn Fryer. Hot gossip. So there's like a lot of intermingling yes, connections of everything. Here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Vanessa Brown did interview Glenn Fryer for this book um, okay. and he denied knowing Dr. Murphy or his wife. But... Okay. Like, through the series of events here, like, we know he knew them. Yeah. Imagine just being like, yeah, I don't know those people, but, like, you obviously know them, and people are like, yeah, but we know but you we know, know them. But we know you know them. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, so, but how do you do that? Like, yeah. 
That's so, like, ballsy. Like, fuck you. <laughs> also, apparently, Dr. Diane Johnson, Betty's psychiatrist, yeah. apparently hated Glenn Fryer. Well, he sounds like a jackass. Yeah. Like, sorry yeah. if he's still kicking it around, but you kind of sound like a jerk. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. After the attack, Betty never wanted to see her car again. She was like, I don't, I don't ever want to drive it again. So like, whatever. Fair. Totally understandable. Yeah. So when the, she said when the police were done with it, she was just going to sell it right off the lot. But she couldn't find the insurance slip for it. Okay. So she couldn't, you can't sell it without the insurance slip. Yeah. And so she just ended up getting rid of it. So her boss, Dr. Murphy, picked her up, said he would like, he offered her rides whenever she needed it because um, he was super sympathetic to her situation. So of he course. picked her up for work and would drive her home when she needed it. And he would take her to these appointments with Dr. Johnson. Um, so she started these appointments, I believe sometime around January 1970. So maybe like a month after her attack. And while they were there, like, she was in her appointment and Dr. Murphy was talking to Glenn Fryer because he was friends with him. Glenn had suggested, like, oh, why don't the four of us, like, Dr. Johnson, you, Dr. Murphy, and, like, me and Betty, why don't we, like, have coffee one time after one of her appointments? Um, And Dr. Murphy said that, like, when he mentioned this to Betty, she kind of, like, freaked out. Like, she was like, no, 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 I don't. I don't want to do that. I don't know if it was maybe just because, like, of her face and maybe she didn't want to, like, I don't know. Socialize. But yeah. he he said he just felt like there was something, like, wrong. Holding her back, yeah. So then after one of her appointments, like, Glenn came up. Yeah. With, like, they all four of them were standing there in the hallway. And Dr. Murphy was like, you know what? We don't have time for coffee. Like, sorry. We have to go. Okay. So Glenn, Betty, Diane Johnson, and and Dr. Murphy. What was his first name again? Oh, Harvey I'm, Murphy. Har- that's they it. were all standing in the hallway together. Okay. Just remember that. So. But two of those people are people that Glenn Fryer doesn't know. Glenn Fryer apparently didn't know Betty Harrison, but he knew Diane Johnson because she they worked together okay. and he knew Dr. Harvey Murphy because they were friends. Okay. So, yeah. So they just left. He was like, we don't have time for coffee. And they left. At the beginning of February, Betty claimed she received another letter saying, we will be watching you, final. But the police never saw this letter because she says that she freaked out and burned it, like, in their fireplace. Well, Betty, you don't burn it, though. I, I know, it. I know. Okay, All right. I get it, yeah. but I get it, but also don't burn it. <laughs> you never burn evidence. I know, I know. Okay. February 16th, Richard Harrison came home to find his mother's bloodied scarf that was taken during the attack tied to their front door handle. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. which is extremely menacing that's, like yeah that's fucked. that's terrifying that's that's scary um around this time dr diane johnson and her husband reverend gerald johnson later said that they were also being harassed at their home so there was like weird stuff like there was like break-ins they were also receiving letters they said one time they came home and all of their children's clothes were like strewn about all over their front lawn like weird stuff weird and it all started happening around this time Okay, so fucking weird. So later in February, um, Betty was hanging out with the Johnsons and they were all talking about like this stuff, like the stuff they were experiencing and whatever. And I guess it came up in conversation that Diane hated Glenn because she didn't, she just didn't like him. So it must have come up and he was her boss. So yeah. it's like, well, my freaking boss, like he's such an idiot. Yeah. Um, she said she believed that like Glenn was sick. And not sick is in like ill, sick is in like Fucked disturbed. Up. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it, you know what? I, when a woman says that, I fucking trust it. 
I don't know what it is, but if someone's like, I don't know, I he, he just gives me that feeling. I always believe it. It's just well, I mean, I, I don't know. Especially, I don't want to jump. I don't want to jump too far as far as like impressions of these people. But <laughs> here I am, like I'm. But when in. you know that someone's like abusing their wife yes. as well, he probably just doesn't have a lot of respect for women, right? So no. like Do- Dr. Diane Johnson's like a woman of authority. I mean, she has a doctorate. Oh yeah, as and well, she probably got right? treated like crap by him. Uh, so she's hi- highly educated and yeah. much more educated yeah. i guess than he is and like and probably a threat honestly yeah so like she probably like yeah there's more that will come out just about like other employees from cpri and stuff like that okay. but basically through this conversation it seems to have come about that they all theorize that like oh what if it's glenn harassing all of us okay Right, because okay. Diane hated him and whatever, and she's like, I think he's disturbed. Like, what? And she had talked about other things that were going on at CPRI as well. She's like, sometimes there's like files that will go missing, and like some some of us are receiving weird phone calls at work. So I think she was trying to connect it to Glenn, being like, well, Glenn knows all of us at work, and like we're experiencing stuff at the office too, yeah. and then now me and like Betty and like, so they basically like. Yeah, they were basically like, we think it's Glenn doing this. And if it's Glenn doing this and threatening Betty for going to the police about, like, giving a statement about Jackie, then they're like, what if he also murdered Jackie English? Well, you would have, you'd have to assume that. If that, like, if, yeah. That's kind of what people are assuming. Like, yeah. people are assuming at this point that whoever attacked Betty Harrison is the person who killed it's doing Jackie it, English. They're doing it for a Or at reason. least was involved in her murder. Exactly. That's what I mean by, like, you. So it's a safe assumption to jump is, to that. Uh, yeah. It, it's a reasonable assumption, for sure. Also, around this time, Glenn Fryer was asked to resign from his position, like, that spring. Why? It's Vanessa Brown she says goes menacingly. on. Well, Vanessa Brown goes on in the book about how like the CPRI was actually going through a lot of restructuring at this time. Yeah. So she's like, to his credit, I don't think it was necessarily because of these like weird things going on in the office. I think okay. it was because of some more internal things that are like unrelated. Okay. But it's just something of note. So in April, Betty had her son. Rich, this is 70, right? 1970? 1970, Okay, yeah. okay. Just making sure. I'm... So, so basically, like, Jackie English was October 1969. 69. So yeah. this is, like, six months later? Yeah. Seven months later? Betty had her son Richard call Glenn to see if she recognized his voice as the man from the phone calls. Because now her friends suggested that, like, oh, I think my boss is the one that attacked you. And Betty's like, well, I, I was getting phone calls. And, like, maybe I'd recognize his voice if I heard it. Um, and when Glenn answered, she was like, yeah, that's his voice. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just keep in mind, this is probably like three or four months after the last phone call. Yeah. And also too, like sometimes when you want to believe something, you'll believe it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So Dennis Alsop interviewed Glenn Fryer on April 8th. Okay. Glenn said he had heard about the attack on Betty from Dr. Murphy's wife, Dorothea. Um, okay. and I think he just said like, yeah, we're friends. Like, she mentioned we, it. that's what I mean about like Glenn Fryer knew them. It's just now years and years later, he's like, no, I don't know who those people are. But, um, <laughs> but Dennis Alsop was like, have you heard about, he didn't even say Betty Harrison's name. He said, did you hear about the attack on Dr. Murphy's receptionist? Okay. And Glenn was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. So Dr. Murphy, now that like Glenn was being investigated, Dr. Murphy was sort of, like, asking Betty questions. He's like, so what made you link all of this to Glenn? Like, he was sort of, like, 
confused. There needs to be a reason, yeah. Yeah, and um, he kind of, it sounds like he thought she was, like, lying or just really trying to pin it on somebody. Yeah, fair. You know, so he asked her, he was like, well, I know Glenn, he had polio as a child and he walks with, like, a pretty significant limp. Okay. So he was like, did the guy that attacked, like, did he have yeah. a limp? And basically all she could say was like, like, well, he limped back to his car after, but like my dog had just attacked him. So like anybody would be limping after that, I guess. So she's like, I I don't know. Uh, But Betty and the Johnsons basically, they were, yeah, they were set on it being Glenn. They conspired to send Glenn a threatening note to see if it would like provoke him, which is a terrible idea. I mean, I think we all know this is a terrible idea, but I was just going to say like, that's a really like something I would do, but also don't do that. Yeah. No, no. (laughs) So apparently, again, we don't know, but apparently a few days later, the note showed back up in Betty's mailbox and she freaked out and she burned it. Betty stopped burning stuff. That's her. That's what she said happened. Okay. So, okay. Who knows? All right. Dennis Alsop was also keeping an eye on Betty's son, Richard. Um, because, you know, Richard was almost like the connector too in this because he had taken classes at CPRI. So Dennis is thinking, okay, so he looked into Richard. He took classes at CPRI that were taught by Glenn Fryer. Mm-hmm. So Dennis is thinking, how could Betty have never met Glenn Fryer before this? Yeah. If your son was taking classes with yeah. him for years. He likely would have at least seen him. Yeah. 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 So that's what Dennis is thinking. Um, and we, like, as, a, like, a reader of Vanessa Brown's book, we know that she met him in the hallway after one of her counseling appointments. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, yeah, weren't they all supposed to have coffee and they all stood in that hall together? Like... Yeah. So she did meet him there. And she and would have had to hear his voice and like, everything. Yes. Well, and again, it's sort of like, it was dark when she was attacked, but if you are, like... I'm certain I'm recognizing this yeah. person. Wouldn't you have recognized him in the hallway? That's just something to think about. Okay. So Dennis also brought... You guys, she just put her finger up at me and that's like just... literally put me on pause. No, 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 no. That's <laughs> okay. not what I'm, I'm just saying, um, make a note. Make a mental note. So Dennis also brought Betty some photographs to look at. She okay. had apparently looked at like over 1,200 mugshots at this point to try and like find her attacker. But among these, there were t- just 12 that he brought. And among them was a picture of Glenn Fryer. Betty pointed him out immediately. But Dennis knew she was lying. Um, and hmm. she she said she knew who the man in the picture was. And he was like, oh, yeah, do you? And she was like, yeah, I recognize him as the man talking to Jackie English at the Met the night that I was there for dinner. So... That's what Betty said. That's what Betty said. Okay. And she apparently started crying um and dr diane johnson was i guess was she was also there during this like photograph lineup and she pointed out glenn as someone she had seen somewhere and dennis is and dennis is sitting there somewhere (laughs) full well knowing that diane johnson works for glenn fryer why are they acting like they don't know him suspicious no why yeah okay Um, richard richard also points out glenn and well, he yeah, says, Richard oh, yeah. takes his classes. But he says, that's the man that we saw at the Met. No, at the that's the guy who teaches my classes. <laughs> I know. I know. Why are they wording it weird? Yeah. Uh, I know. That's why Dennis is suspicious. He's like, what the fuck is going on here? Um, what so the fuck? on April 26th, <laughs> Glenn Fryer was arrested for the attack on Betty Harrison. Okay. Okay. Up- upon searching his office and his house, they found 
one of the pieces of evidence they were looking for. They said they told Glenn's wife they were like, we're looking for two things. One of them is the insurance slip from Betty's car. Mm -hmm. And Ruth was like, oh, yeah, let me go get it. Like, completely oblivious. And she comes back. She's like, this is it, right? And she pulls out um, a greeting card that read on the front, I don't feel safe around you. And on the inside, it said, you've got my combination. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know what that's about. But okay. inside the card was the insurance slip. And Dennis was, like, so confused. And he's like, when did you get this? She's like, well, someone mailed it to us a week ago. And um, Glenn oh, you- just... Okay. Glenn just, like, we thought it was an advertisement for an insurance company. Someone's someone's insurance slip that has their first and last name and likely address and everything. That's advertising? I mean, <laughs> it, sound, it sounds to me like Dennis believed her because she was so unaware of its significance that she was like, oh, yeah, here it is. Someone mailed it to us last week. And that's the thing is that she was like, someone mailed it to us. Not like, oh, I found this in my husband's office. Okay. Like... Someone sent it to us. Okay. So oh, I'm so confused. Okay. I know. Okay. I know. I'm just. I feel like I'm having like a fever dream right now. It's like so this bizarre. Is, this okay. is so bizarre. I just. I want this to be done. <laughs> so they asked Ruth where her husband was on December 11th, which was the day of the attack. She okay. was like, "Oh, I'm gonna go check my checkbook because this is like a lot of people would do that. It's kind of like us looking at our bank account if we were no, like, yeah." I don't know what I did that yeah. day. Yeah, right? even if I check my agenda, like I usually would check my bank to see actually where yeah. I yeah. was. <laughs> so this is what some yeah. people would do, right? To jog her memory. So she looked at her checkbook. She says, oh yeah, I took three of our four children shopping that day at Kmart. Um, their fourth child was sick. And so Glenn stayed home with him as he had some paperwork to do. So Ruth returned around 10 p.m. with the kids and Glenn was there. This is the same alibi that Glenn gave at the police station. He said he got home from work around 4.30 or 5. He had dinner with his family and then they all, without him and his um, sick child, they, the rest of them went shopping around 8 p.m. and then got back around 10. Okay. Betty Harrison was attacked at around 6 p.m. Okay. 6, 6.10. Yeah. So okay. that would give him an alibi. Yeah. Um. Glenn volunteered a saliva sample, and he made eight handwriting samples. Okay. To match against the the letters. The letters and stuff, yeah, okay. On May 14th, um, Betty Harrison was shopping when she came out to her car. She found a greeting card on the seat. It said, since I last saw you, I've been doing a little bit of this, that, and the other thing. Mostly the other thing. Okay. She reported it to to Dennis Alsop immediately. She didn't burn it this time? No, I guess not. Okay picky about those ones yeah i mean i'd be burning the one that said i would be like handing in the one that said past due which is like yeah not burning out um dennis also began having betty's mail checked at the post office before being delivered to her okay just like intercept any threatening mail before it reached her which is good very good on july 6th a letter was found at the post office for betty inside the envelope was um lined paper with letters cut out of a magazine no yeah like 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 true ransom yeah that said coming soon your death not today perhaps not tomorrow but soon very soon whether you spend it at the beach or in the backyard get the most out of your summer after all it's short enough Okay. 
Also, like, isn't that a lot of letters to cut out? I actually, that is, I didn't want to admit it, but that is exactly what I was thinking. I knew that's what you were thinking. I, I, my <laughs> brain went to, do they have, like, a bowl of, like, each letter that's, like, already pre-cut and this person's just as crazy as I am and, like, has something like that where they're like, oh, well, let me just pull from my bowl of A's here and just Yeah, construct. I know. I'm like, Jesus, must that take them like, for fucking ever. Honestly, that's, like, so much work. I know. Like, just fucking, come on, man. I know. I know. Okay. All right. But that's a long letter. Uh, yeah. So they intercepted that one. Um, the summer and fall leading up to Glenn's trial, Betty reported increasing incidents of harassment, especially in October. There was like three or four things in October that was like similar to these things, like letters. October and... of 70? Yeah. Yeah. This is still 1970. Yeah, okay. I wasn't so... sure if we hadn't gone. No. Okay. So we've come almost a full year now yeah. from Betty's attack and over a full year from Jackie's murder. Okay. The trial began on November 23rd, 1970. So Betty was attacked December 11th, 1969. Yeah. Almost. So um, Betty testified for two days on the stand. Her story had changed over the past year and it contradicted some other witnesses that eventually took the stand. Okay. None of the witnesses... None of the witnesses could corroborate Betty's story about seeing Jackie at the Met counter with two men who upset her. Like, a lot of her co-workers and, like, even her boyfriend, like, testified. And a lot of her co-workers were like, she didn't drop a glass of water. She didn't seem upset. And you'd remember something like that. Like, a, a server would remember that. Like, David said she didn't come home and say that anyone had said anything to upset her. So, like, yeah. no one else, if this did happen, no one else saw it or noticed Which it. Which would be odd in a yeah. busy restaurant on, like, a Friday night. Like, it, that would be odd. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So, yeah. Betty's testimony about her attack was, like, on the stand, I guess, was confusing and, like, incoherent and, like, erratic. It was a bit all over the place. I think that's why mm-hmm. Vanessa Brown's like, I did my best to piece it together, <laughs> I did my best. but I don't <laughs> yeah. really know. We don't Vanessa, really know. Vanessa, you did great. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're not the honestly, problem here. <laughs> yeah, you're not the problem here. <laughs> um, the description she had originally given of the man who attacked her, so remember I said Dennis Alsop saw her in the hospital that night. She gave a description. It had changed yeah. a lot. Okay. Um, and the description of the man she saw at the Met, they had both changed to very much resemble Glenn Fryer. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? We know we know this happens, right? Yeah. She had also described the car as a dark color, but, like, the, uh, the driver or the guy that attacked her, the car he got into, she said it was dark, but later changed that to a light color, which, of course, matched the color of Glenn's car, which was an aquamarine Ford Fairlane. Okay. Which is also consistent with one of the models that her husband said he saw yes. driving outside. Fairlane. Uh, like a blue... Yeah. He said Ford, Falcon, Fairlane, or Meteor. Falcon, that was what I think of. Yeah. From the sounds of it, the defense kind of, like, I think, tore her apart. Like, I think they just tried really hard to discredit her, and I think she kind of made it easy for them with all yeah. of her inconsistencies and stuff. So, like... Again, I, we don't really know where the truth lies here, but yeah. they were basically asking her questions like, why didn't she call the police after receiving the letter that day? Why not drive straight to the hospital after the attack instead of driving home? Why even take that route home when it would have been faster just to take the 401 or another side road? It was like one yeah. that wasn't like direct, I guess. Um, she said she stopped on the street by chance, but a local farmer testified that she stopped in that spot all the time to let Cindy out for a run. He even recognized her car. Okay. Um, why did she pretend that she didn't know Glenn Fryer when Dennis Alsop showed her the photo lineup? And if she knew Glenn before, then why didn't she recognize him as her attacker when he jumped in her car? 
Yeah, because when you know a person, even if it's dark, you'll recognize them. Yeah, and I when think they're getting into your vehicle, I like, think that's what they're implying. I think they're trying to prove that like you did know him before your attack because you your son went to CPRI, so you either w- would have recognized him, or again, like even a- if you didn't hadn't met him before, yeah. but then you had this attack, you would have like, you oh, met fuck, him after him. in the hall. Like, there's yeah. so many times where she crossed paths with him that like it's hard to, it's hard to believe she didn't know him. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, after her cross examination, she didn't. She didn't return to court. Uh, yeah, I probably wouldn't either. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, I just made kind of like a little bit of a fool of myself up there. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Richard Harrison took the stand as well. He admitted on the stand that he knew Glenn Fryer from as far back as 10 years prior. Okay. Which means that him pointing out Glenn's picture in Dennis's lineup is completely irrelevant. Like, it's useless. Yeah. Right? Um, as the man that he saw at the Met, basically. Yes. Yeah. Um, Marilyn Hurd also took the stand and it turns out that she had taken some remedial classes at CPRI as well okay. alongside Richard Harrison. Okay. So she knew Richard and she knew Glenn. Okay. Because Glenn also taught her classes. Okay. She apparently lived only a f- few blocks away from the Harrisons, knew all of them. I think maybe, maybe as acquaintances, like I don't think she was best friends with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she also knew Glenn. So she kind of provided a bit of a connection between, like, Glenn Fryer, the Harrisons, and Jackie English. Because she was friends with Jackie. I think that's why they put her on the stand. To get a connection at, to just at all. <laughs> maybe further prove that, like, the Harrisons had to have known Glenn. I don't know. But okay. I don't know exactly the details of her testimony, but she was put on the stand. Yeah. Dr. Diane Johnson also um, took the stand along with some other CPRI employees. Um, a lot of them didn't speak highly of Glenn. They speculated he was mentally ill. Some suspected he had been making strange phone calls to some of them. He apparently had a reputation for not being truthful and for treating women poorly. Which we suspected already. Which isn't surprising. They said he even sometimes would become violent towards women, especially young women. Uh, okay. Which is so unsettling. Yeah. Um. So... Uh, they said some of them also received letters similar to the ones that Betty Harrison and Diane Johnson had been receiving. So this is kind of like happening. It sounds like a bit to everybody at work and like even at home. Yeah. So um, Glenn's lawyers brought up Dr. Robert Dryberg as a character witness for Glenn. Okay. So this was interesting. This actually shook me when I read this because Dr. Dryberg is my chiropractor, but this Dr. Robert Dryberg is my chiropractor's father. Interesting. Okay. Yes. Because she was like, he's a chiropractor and like owns a clinic and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah. So that's my chiropractor's father. This is how small London is. Yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Robert Dryberg was brought up as a character witness. He owned a chiropractic clinic and he volunteered with trouble youth. He was um, like very well respected in the community. He was an elder at the Hamilton Road Brethren Church. As was Glenn Fryer. So he knew him through church and just like the community. Yeah. He described Glenn as a peace-loving type of man. Oh, he sounds like it. Yeah, I know. He doesn't sound very peaceful to me. People but... are calling him literally like a wife beater and someone has to <laughs> yeah. say, yeah, that's interesting. I, and also... I think I think the thing is that not all of the CPRI employees spoke poorly of Glenn. 
A lot of them did, but not all of them did. Okay. So I think his lawyers were like, we're going to bring someone up who will speak, like, highly of you. Of course, that's good for his defense. And it also kind of sounds like men have a different perspective of Glenn to begin with. Yeah, and and that doesn't surprise me, right? Because, like, if Glenn respects you and looks at you as, like, someone, like, an equal or something, I'm sure he'll be nice to you, right? Okay. Um, Speculation also surrounded Glenn Fryer's whereabouts on the night of October 4th. Okay. Because... Although this trial was actually about the attack on Betty Harrison, like, the London community was still so consumed with the idea that he had killed Jackie English that, like, these questions were being asked. Um, Glenn and his family were driving back from a dinner in Stratford on October 4th, and around 9.30, 10pm, when Jackie would have been getting off from work, he said they stopped at a garage in Hyde Park where he kept some of his classic cars that he owned. He didn't say, uh, it didn't say why they stopped, but they stopped there. At some point during the trial, the prosecution petitioned to have George Morris take the stand, who was the owner of that garage in Hyde Park. Okay. But Morris never took the stand because the judge said that this is about, this trial is about the events that occurred on December 11th, the attack on Betty Harrison, not, it doesn't have anything to do with October 4th. So he was like, it's not relevant to this case, yeah. which I completely understand. I understand, but it also would have put him on the record, like... But but the fact that he was going to be called, or that it was petitioned to put him on the stand, what was he going to say? Was he going to not corroborate Glenn's alibi, or yeah. was he going to say that Glenn wasn't with his family, that his family stopped, but Glenn wasn't there? Like, we don't know what he was going to say, it, and yeah. he's now, he's deceased now. So, like, fuck, it sounds like Vanessa Brown tried, but she couldn't, like, information. we don't know what he was going to, what his testimony was going to contain. But he was petitioned, so it's just something to keep in mind. Um, and it was, um, he was petitioned by the prosecution. So okay. it was going to be something, obviously, that benefited them, not Glenn's defense. No. Um, So, as far as physical evidence goes from this case, the case of Betty Harrison, um, Mm -hmm. a local farmer testified that he saw Betty's car, which he recognized, again, from how often she stopped there. He said he saw it on that night driving erratically on the road. He didn't see any other cars. The footprints um, on the ground left by Betty's attacker somewhat matched Glenn's shoe size and a pair of boots that he had at his house, but the scene had been contaminated by rain that day, so they couldn't really say with certainty because I guess they didn't get there until, like, a few hours later. Okay. There was a cigarette butt found in Betty's car, believed to be from her attacker because she didn't smoke. It was tested, and the DNA was found to be from a non-secretor. So I know we've heard this before in true crime cases, just to remind people that um, basically, like, if you are a secretor, your blood type will secrete into other bodily fluids, such as saliva or semen. Yeah. So they can test your saliva and determine what blood type you are. If you are a non-secretor, which is a very, very small portion of the population, mm-hmm. then they can't determine your blood type from saliva or semen. They would need to take an actual blood, yeah. like blood sample from you. Yes. So Glenn Fryer is a secretor and the DNA on the cigarette butt was from a non-secretor. Okay. So then. So that rules out. Glenn, as far as the cigarette butt goes, if they believe it came from her attacker, which, again, she didn't smoke. So they're kind of believing that it did. Yeah. Could could the husband have the occasional sneaky smoke that she doesn't know about or something? Her her husband didn't smoke. It it came out later that apparently her son did, so it could have been him. Okay. 
Um, yes, but it could it couldn't have been from Glenn Fryer. Okay, is basically what we're saying. Yeah, the handwriting analysis was inconclusive when comparing Glenn's samples to the letters. Um, none of the fingerprints on any of the letters matched Glenn's. Um, also, just of note, because it was mentioned in the Forest City Killer. I think it was, yeah, it was, yeah, I think it was Vanessa Brown that mentioned this. Ruth Fryer drove a white Chrysler station wagon, okay. which was the vehicle of interest in the Jacqueline Dunleavy case. Right. That a witness saw her getting into. Okay. It's just something that she noted as far as like cars and makes and stuff that we've been talking about. Yeah. Um, and again, they lived very, very close to Jacqueline Dunleavy and Frankie Jensen. That's why it makes Glenn Fryer seem like a really, really suspicious good. character. Because he also just, like, moved into town, like, right before everything happened. Well, he moved into that neighborhood right yeah. before, a week before Frankie Jensen went missing. Yeah. Apparently, Dennis Alsop asked him about it in one of the interviews. He was like, did you participate in the search for Frankie Jensen? And apparently Glenn was like, what? Why would I? It's none, It was none of my business. I wasn't even... Yeah. Oh, that's like apparently that like shocked a, him. You that's know, that's a good answer to have. Yeah, that's a um, really good smooth play. So a cool buddy. I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I'm just trying to pull in Playing some of these dumb connections. Devil's advocate. Yeah, here. <laughs> and I'm just like the fact that he asked too is just that's what that's, that's so what that's what these authors are saying, right? Vanessa Brown and Michael Armfield are like the fact that we like that he asked those questions kind of tells us what he was thinking, right? He was trying to make connections. Oh yeah. Um, during the trial, Betty Harrison revealed that she had mailed the insurance slip to Glenn Fryer's house. Oh, okay. There's no case. There's no case. <laughs> yeah. That's, that closes it. The letter that came along with it had used a children's stencil set to write it out, which was actually the same as some of the letters that Betty was receiving. Some of them were written out with like a stencil set. You know what I'm talking about? Like stencil yes. letters. Yeah. yeah. So that looks bad for Betty. That looks really bad. Because you're admitting you sent the insurance slip to, like, freak him out. Okay, that's one thing. But, like, the fact that the card that came with it used, like, the same stencil set as the ones that you were getting. Some of your letters, like, some of her letters were using a stencil mm -hmm. and other ones were handwritten. Yeah. So it's, like, were some of them fake? Yeah. I don't think all of them were. Someone is going to message us and say that this sounds exactly like The Watcher. I'm just putting it out there now. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, <Yes>. okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, damn. So Betty claimed that her attacker would have a wound from where her, like her dog bit yeah. him, like Cindy bit him, right? Like oh, pretty, yeah. got him pretty good. Um, and cuts on his hand from when she fought back against him with his own knife. Yeah. So apparently she knows like for sure that she did cut him somewhere. Some employees testified that Glenn didn't have like a cut on his hand or any bandages. Other ones said that he did. There was actually quite a few people that said that they saw him with bandages on his hand around this time. And one even said they, they thought they saw like a bandaid on his face. Okay. Um, but his office manager who worked with him like every day said she didn't, she didn't see anything. So kind of like 50, 50 there. Weird. Okay. One person said they heard him complain about having a sore leg. Around this but time. But he had polio, correct? But again, he had polio and, like, he walked with a limp, so, like... He'd his, likely always have a Like, his leg, like, yeah. he had to be in a brace as a child okay. and, like, something about the... Something had to be fused. I can't remember the details of it, but I would yeah. imagine his leg was probably sore, like, regularly. Yeah. It's just my speculation, but, again, this is just the evidence that was pre pre presented. Um, police found a carton knife in the trunk of Glenn's car, and... It, and one of the, like, whoever examined Betty and, like, determined what 
weapon would have been used. They said it would, it would have probably been like thin, like a razor blade almost. She described it as like an eight, eight foot, like double ended knife or something like that. Um, so it wasn't the same knife that they found in Glenn's car from her description. They also said it had a bunch of blue paint on it that was like chipping off. Okay. And a lot of experts were like, if he was flailing it around and slashing at her, like some of that paint definitely would have been in her car. Yeah. So take that, take that as you may, but it doesn't sound like it's the same weapon. Glenn Fryer chose a trial by judge. And he later said to Vanessa Brown, good thing I did, because to be honest, it sounds like everybody in London thought it was him. That everybody wanted they it. They just wanted it to, to be him. him. Because it, it wraps up nicely. This guy that not everybody likes, like suspicious, whatever, has a few things that you can kind of pin against him. Not everything fits, but you can make it work. Like, yeah, yeah you that want he attacked to... this woman, that he killed Jackie English. Because yeah. again, everyone's believing that if he gets convicted of this crime, then like he's... Guilty of everything else, exactly. too. Because it, it, it sounds wonderful. It sounds nice. It sounds like a it resolution. It sounds like a really good story. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, he chose, he chose a trial by judge. And, again, he says that if he chose a trial by jury, he would have been convicted. But the judge basically said, like, looking at the evidence. The facts. Yeah. I cannot convict you beyond a reasonable doubt. Oh, and that's true. And the judge basically said... I'm not convinced of your innocence in all of yeah. this. He said only you, you know. You sound like a shitty guy, yeah. but. He's like, only you know if you're innocent or not. But based on this evidence, I can't convict you. Yeah. And that's basically, that's basically how, how it ended. So yeah. he was not convicted. Okay. Um, in 1974, Glenn moved to Toronto for work after receiving his BA from the University of Waterloo. Mm-hmm. His wife joined him a few years later after their kids had finished school in London. Okay. Glenn worked as an educator with special needs children and retired in 1994. Okay. In the late 1990s, Glenn Fryer's DNA was tested against evidence found at the scene where Jackie's body was discovered. It was not a match. Okay. Even after the trial ended, Betty Harrison called Detective Alsop to report more threatening phone calls and suspicious items found in her car and around her house. She even showed up at his office one time to ask him to come to her house to interview her. And eventually, Dennis Alsop's superiors ordered him to stop following up on her reports. That is the thing. You can't cry wolf too many times. Like, you can't. Yeah. It, it, it's an age-old story for a reason. And that's the thing. Is like that's That's what sucks like even with someone like marilyn hurd or betty harrison where it's like there is truth in there like betty harrison was attacked yes and i i definitely definitely believe she was being harassed that she at least received one threatening phone call at least received one threatening letter and that's terrifying like that's enough to to put you into a state of paranoia where you believe that it's happening maybe more than it is yeah i sympathize with that Mm -hmm. for sure yeah because you would start to feel like you're losing your grip on reality. Yeah. I'm very stuck on the insurance slip, though, because I question, who who was it that discovered that the insurance slip wasn't in the vehicle after her attack? Was it Betty? Or was it, like, an officer who searched the car after? Be- well, in the book, it sounds like Betty wanted to sell her car, but then she couldn't find the insurance slip. Okay. It says that, okay. she, that Richard... Uh, was adamant that he had put the... Because they had gotten new insurance or something. Okay. That he had put the new insurance slip in the car. He's like, I know I put it in there. Okay. 
she couldn't find it, and then they got rid of the car. So, obviously, before they got rid of the car, they must have found it. Because that's what I was thinking. What my, My thought process was, okay, she's in the hospital. If it was an officer that searched the car and was like, I can't find the insurance slip. Mm-hmm. This is the only item missing. Then that's a lot of premeditation of like setting him up kind of thing. Or you know actually what maybe is more likely because I'm wondering like she wanted to sell her car. Yeah. And she couldn't because she didn't have the insurance slip. So she just got rid of it. Maybe after she got rid of it, they found the insurance slip in her house somewhere. Because I'm thinking if she found it before, she hadn't even suspected Glenn Fryer at this point. Wouldn't she have just sold her car then? That's the thing. So maybe she found it after she got rid of the car. Once Diane Johnson had sort of planted this idea in her head that it could have been Glenn. Mm -hmm. And then a few weeks later, they're messing around and they're like, we're going to send him something. They sent him like, whatever I said, like they sent him like a letter. Yeah. Got mailed back to Betty, according to her. But yeah, basically she, around the time that she says she sent this letter is like apparently two days apart from when the friars received this insurance slip. So some people speculate that like she in her sort of incoherence of like recalling these events that maybe she says like I sent him a letter but instead they sent him the insurance slip and that's what she sent him and then on the stand she admits that it was them that sent the insurance slip. So okay. We do know that like that's why. I don't know why I, they kept I'm it surprised to be honest. Glenn like didn't fucking charge her with something because that's fucked. Yes. I think that's fucked up. Like, yeah. And that's the thing. It's like, you are at that point trying to frame, frame. somebody. That's framing. You're trying to frame someone that you do believe did it. But again, you're not. You're not helping. You're, you're not helping. And you're not fully aware of the outside influences that are leading you to this person, right? I think that she just wanted it to be somebody. And that's the thing. But it's just like, it doesn't, it doesn't help. And I, yeah. I that's why I think that's why I'm like stuck on it. It's like, that actually hindered a and lot of it. And that's why Dr. Harvey Murphy, like, who also testified and like his wife and like everyone testified. But like he, that's why he was so suspicious in the beginning. He's like, why Glenn? Like, what brought you to this conclusion so suddenly yeah and like dr murphy his wife was apparently having an affair with glenn fryer like he had every reason to want it to be glenn oh yeah and he was still like like, i yeah basically i think it said in the book that his testimony was like in kind of in favor of glenn and Hmm. not betty so it is interesting that like I think there's a lot of people that agree that like he was a shady character yeah. for sure. Oh, He's absolutely. Very suspicious there's no denying guy, that. Yeah, but that they don't think he did this, yeah. and that he couldn't have been Jackie's murderer. There's a there, lot. Of, yeah. I think there's still a possibility that he could have been involved, but the DNA doesn't match. Mm-hmm. So that's hard to say. But again, if there was multiple people that picked up Jackie, like he could have been one of them. Could have been. We don't know for sure, but I don't think he attacked Betty Harrison. No. Yeah. So I I don't think so either. It kind of doesn't really line up. No. For me. No. Personally. (laughs) Um, And it's such a waste of resources too to have such a circus of a trial like that probably lasted forever. And like so many people were brought (sighs) in and everything. That's yeah. yeah. Um, November seventeenth, nineteen seventy-two. One thirty-three Elmwood. The apartments that yeah. stood at 133 Elmwood burnt down. Okay. The cause of the fire was never determined. Okay. Okay. So that's why I said 133 Elmwood isn't there anymore. It's just a parking lot. So it burnt down in 1972. Completely. Okay. Um, 
There were three. So weird. Okay. There were three. I believe there were three people that died. I didn't write all the details because there's a whole section in the Forest City Killer about this fire. But again, I couldn't include everything. But um, I I believe a mother and her two children died. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Um, January 8th, 1973. Okay. So we're, because that was November 1972. So we're like three months later. Mm -hmm. Two months later. Firefighters arrived at 171 Elgin Street around 3 a.m., to find the body of Verdon Harrison just a few feet from the door. Betty and Richard were found inside Richard's bedroom. Betty had cuts on her hands and bruises on her forehead. It appeared that she might have tried to smash a window open. Okay. Um, they all died of asphy- asphyxiation. Oh my god, okay. The fire had started in an addition at the back of the house. Okay, I, I'm only including this because I know this is going to upset you, but I'm only including it just because this is weird they had a dog it was not cindy because cindy had been mysteriously poisoned okay in 1971 okay may 7th 1971 so that would have been like Who six seven months after the trial terrible terrible so their dog was also found in the house like they all died in the fire but it wasn't cindy it was, they got another dog, dog after okay. Cindy died. His name was Chimo. He was a German shepherd because they wanted to have a dog to feel safe. Of course. Um, but it's just, I only included that detail because it is very strange that Cindy was poisoned. Like, that's not, like, your dog didn't die of old age. No. Didn't get hit by a car. Like, your dog was poisoned. What kind of poison was it? Do, or, it, doesn't, okay. it doesn't say. It okay. just says she was mysteriously poisoned. Okay. All right. Okay. And then... The entire family dies in a fire two years later. Oh, this is so fucked up. Okay. There was speculation among the police that were, like, that viewed the house, that showed up at the scene, that, like, there was some sort of understanding, and we don't know where this came from, and it it hasn't been corroborated, that the fire was started by a Molotov cocktail that had been thrown through the back window. Oh, fuck. Okay. Which wouldn't be accidental. Like, that would be a very deliberate fire. But the official report ruled that the fire was accidental due to a lit cigarette falling on some furniture. So we don't know. Okay. Betty's sister also told the newspaper that someone had tried to set the Harrison's car on fire. They had come outside. They heard their dog, Chimo, barking like crazy. And they ran outside. And their car was covered in some sort of flammable liquid like they could smell it like it was yeah. probably gasoline you or something see it, like dripping and yeah you'd smell but, something like that for but sure. they assumed that their dog like barking scared the person off before they could like light a match and actually light it on fire yeah okay um but dennis Alsop couldn't shake the coincidence of the elmwood ave fire and the fire at the harrisons yeah that no that's way too much of a coincidence like it really is yeah that's so bizarre yeah he dug that's so intentional he dug into some of the residents at 133 elmwood and he did discover some new witness accounts relating to jackie and like stories about when the Englishes lived there some shady characters there's definitely some interesting information there he didn't find like an aha moment or anything like that just like but yeah. again i can't i couldn't include all of that because it just would have been too much but there there is like a section about that in the book just about like some of the people that lived there that that the Englishes knew yeah, or conversed with and stuff because yeah. he was just sort of like, this is weird. I need to look into these apartments because, like, 
there's got to be something about this yeah. place. And he did or... discover some new information and definitely some new witness accounts. That's just all kind of part of the story. But um, Doris English never let the murder of her youngest daughter go. Of course not. She apparently would drive around sometimes with, like, a knife. Um, like, just searching for Jackie's killer. And, and like... Because how, how do you put that to rest? I don't know. Like, how do you? Like, you, of course, you would drive around and just, like, all that would be on your mind is, like, is that him? Is that the person? Like, you you would just... Yeah. No matter, like, how much you work on it, like, therapy or anything like that, it's just, like, it's gonna always be there. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Of course. Of course. And so, apparently, she... And, like I said, like, Jackie's siblings, like, still, like, their whole lives they spent investigating this case and trying to figure it out. Um, And so, Doris was kind of right there with them. And... She sent out, this is, yeah, I don't know, this is ballsy, in my opinion, but she sent out dinner invitations, not at the same time, but separately, to Betty Harrison and to Glenn Fryer. And they both accepted. Was was the dinner for the same day? It wasn't, no, 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 it was separate times. That's okay. why I was like, it's separate invitations, but. Because I was like, oh, damn, she's, <laughs> she's fucking trying to set up, like, no, her no, own no, interrogation. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine? Like, oh, my God. Imagine. So uncomfortable, but. Um, apparently Betty Harrison came to dinner and, like, the Englishes just thought she was, like, crazy. Um, but... Okay. But when Glenn Fryer came to dinner, Doris and Fred English actually, like, became quite good friends with him after this. Okay. And Glenn, I guess, acted as a bit of, like, a father figure towards Fred. Like, he did a lot of stuff with him. Like, apparently Glenn's kids were even, like, jealous of Fred at one point because, like, Glenn was, like, so fond of Fred. Um, Doris English and Ruth Fryer became extremely close, especially okay. while Glenn was living in Toronto and Ruth was still in London. Okay. Anne English, who's, like, mostly interviewed in yeah. this book, Vanessa Brown interviews her extensively, uh, says that she, like, never liked the Fryers. Like, she thought it was weird that... It is, they were it friends. Is weird. That, that her mom and brother wanted to be friends with them, and she just, like, didn't. She was, like, they were just not my pe- kind of people. Like, regardless of any reputation or anything, she was, like, they just weren't my cup of tea. Like, you I didn't, mesh I didn't well, like them. You don't mesh them. well, yeah. Um, in 1981, Doris English was diagnosed with breast cancer. She chose not to have her breast removed and instead went into palliative care to wait out her final days. Fuck. Okay, that's rough. Yeah. That's very rough. Okay. Anne English still has some major reservations about Glenn Fryer, and although his DNA wasn't a match, she still believes there is a strong possibility that he played a role in the death of her sister. Like we said, it's very possible. Yes. Like, while he might... Yeah, I don't know. And, and, and yeah, and that's the thing. <sighs> I mean, she... She feels the way she feels. Again, they believe that Marilyn Hurd knows something that she's not talking about, and Glenn Fryer. Um, so, like I said, basically... Oh, I'm going to cut one more thing from the Forest City Killer, and then I'm going to jump over to Murder City for a bit, because there's just a bit of information from that that I wanted to discuss. But in 1978, Dennis Alsop received a call that David Papel, Mm -hmm. Jackie's boyfriend at the time that she died, that he had been arrested in BC after the attack and attempted rape of his girlfriend. Oh, Apparently, this is why he was getting the call. Apparently, when the arresting officers were hauling him off in handcuffs, he said something to the effect of, I know now what it is like for a girl to be raped because my girlfriend was raped and murdered and I didn't get a chance to fuck her. 
Okay. So, okay. Did he lie about having sex with Jackie? That's the big question that everyone's asking. Okay, yeah, because... Okay. And that's why I said that would come back around. Because yeah. if he had sex with her... And the blood type matches the semen that was found inside her to him. That's That was their understanding for, like, quite a then while. That really pins a little bit of responsibility on him. But also for him to say, I never got to, is weird because there's, like, literally an eyewitness of them naked in bed, or, bed together. Mm-hmm. There's her diary account of being carried off to bed and not really knowing what happens next and... Mm-hmm having tears and and we don't know i mean like they could have like fooled around a bit and not had sex and like some people do speculate like maybe like he was older and maybe he was just bragging like maybe he was like yeah we're having sex of course we're not right like that's not hard to and that that's so not hard to a young guy would do that no Um, half the guys we went to high school with all made up shit like that right it's it's (laughs) it's it's not fair but it's normal yeah and who knows? That, that's what a the thing. fucking weird thing to what say a weird when you're being thing. hauled off. Wow. Ten years later. Yeah. Yeah. Still holding on some, like, weird resentment about not being able to have sex with your girlfriend? Interesting. And Jackie had never written in her diary that she had had sex with David. Or with anyone else, for that matter. Okay. For someone... So, like, people are saying, for someone who, like, wrote about, like, Everything. the dates that she went on and the guys that she kissed and yeah. whatever all this stuff, she never wrote about... Her first sexual experience, like, yeah. if which, that were to happen. Which I feel like for anybody who is, like, a consistent diary writer, that's a moment you document. That's a huge moment. Whether yeah. it's good or bad, you're documenting it. Yeah. In one way or another. Yeah. Because she even documented in code the night that she was taken to Dave's room and, like, stripped down and whatever. And she said, I faked tears. So, like, I could take that as, like, she faked crying and then he, Stop. like, didn't, yeah, he didn't do anything. Yeah. So I would imagine if she was writing in code, like, if they had had sex that night, like, would she not have maybe said, like... He did this to me. Yeah. Or, like, we had sex or something like that. Like, at any point in her code, in her diary, anywhere? Yeah. I don't know. Again, it's hard to say, but that's just something of note that she never... She never wrote about it. Hmm. So it is highly possible that David was lying. Ugh. The semen found at the crime scenes of Jackie English, Jacqueline Dunleavy, and Georgia Jackson were all type O blood type, which means they would have to be a secretor. Yeah. Um, this seemed to rule out Glenn Fryer. Okay. Because, again, none of that matched Glenn. Yeah. While David Papel was in jail, his brother Rick wrote him a letter, which was eventually sent to Dennis Alsop by the jail officials. Mm-hmm. In the letter, Rick wrote about something that had happened between the two brothers in the past and implored David to keep this a secret. Hmm. And from Dennis Alsop's notes, it was clear that he was keeping an eye on Rick Papel, like, just, just, in at, case. At, just at one point, because um, Jackie had written about kissing a guy named Lloyd, which everyone assumed was Lloyd Lackey that she worked with. Mm-hmm. But Rick Papel's middle name was Lloyd. Oh, what the fuck? And Dennis Alsop had referred to Rick Papel as Lloyd in some of his notes. Okay. I'm wondering if maybe, like, maybe Rick went by Lloyd sometimes. I don't know. Interesting. But okay. it is just something to think about. Oh, my God. Okay. Dennis also made note of Rick's car, which was a red 1966 Dodge with square taillights. Okay. Okay. 
So a point that converges a bit in the Forest City Killer and in Murder City. So Vanessa Brown basically acknowledges that there is a guy in Michael Artfield's book in Murder City that he refers to as the porn man. Mm-hmm. He he does eventually name him. I'll get to it. But basically he has like a whole section. It's called the porn man. Vanessa Brown talks about it in her book because she's like, a lot of people have asked me about this and I've seen this on a lot of like Unsolved Canada forums and things like that. And she's like, basically the story of the porn man is that there was a guy in London that police, there were reports that led police to searching his house and they found child pornography and a trunk full of jars of human feces. Ew. Yeah. Um, some people assumed that the porn man from Michael Arnfield's book is Glenn Fryer, although Vanessa Brown said there's no basis for this other than a CPRI rumor that the groundskeeper of CPRI did a plumbing job at the Fryer's house and called the police after he found kitty porn on eight millimeter film jammed into the pipes. It was like a yeah, rumor a that rumor, was started yeah. and that the, he called and then the police came and searched and they didn't find kitty porn, but they found like pictures of young boys and then these jars full of feces vanessa brown this is interesting she traced the story about the the first story about the poor man to a series of articles published in the toronto star in 1992 written by john duncanson and nick prawn does that Lethal Marriage, yeah, okay. He wrote, yeah, he wrote, and he wrote Lethal Marriage. I was like, wow, I know that name so, and I can, like, picture it, what's it on? And then I, like, scanned up in my image, and it said, yeah, okay. Yeah, (laughs) and she mentions that in her book. She was like, he wrote Lethal Marriage. Um, She praises that book, actually. Yeah, it's intense. Please, yeah, either read it or just don't, because it's very heavy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. One or the other. (laughs) Um, So Nick Prawn and John Duncanson wrote a series of articles in the Toronto Star about cold cases in southwestern Ontario, She basically credits both of them with, like, theorizing about the Forest City killer before anyone else had. Yeah. Other than maybe, like, Dennis Alsop, I'm assuming, like... Yeah, but he... We we know he thought about a serial killer being on the loose, but, like... But he obviously didn't, like, publicize it because he held that close to his chest. These are all... We know this from the analysis of his notes now. Exactly. But, like, these guys were the first to actually, like, publish something about there being possibly a Forest City killer connecting some of these cold cases. So I just thought that was, like, kind of interesting because, yeah, he I know he wrote Lethal Marriage and I know you you read that. Yeah. Um, Michael Arntfield says that stories of the porn man had surfaced as early as the winter of 1968 around the Frankie Jensen and Jacqueline Dunleavy murders. In the neighborhood around where both the victims lived, complaints had been heard about a man who would approach children to show them pornographic photographs mostly of like bestiality ew which is really gross I don't, and i think that's why that like these reports like were kind of like making waves because they're very bizarre yeah because that's quite the crazy like rumor to hear and like yeah, yeah you'd be like what the f- say that again like yeah and your kid coming home and telling you like oh this is what i saw oh, today I'd be, like oh. walk in the streets with a knife being like who did this like, yeah yeah so dennis Elsop had caught wind of these reports and decided to look into them basically like dennis didn't believe that someone just like wakes up one day and commits a sexual homicide no and that's 
he, he's very accurate in yeah, saying that. Arntfield says that he was likely one of the first documented law enforcement professionals to begin looking at cases in the context of preparatory paraphilias as an early warning side predicting future yeah. behavior and escalations. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's why Dennis was like, okay, I'm hearing reports about this guy, and although he's not, like... like killing or murdering kids but like that's alarming behavior and that could lead to something later absolutely which we know now is completely true that's like almost a hard fact that's happening like yeah 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 so um in yeah in murder city it's kind of like implied in the beginning of this whole section about the porn man that it is glenn fryer because he's like but he keeps saying like the like the man people strongly believe is the porn man was the head of CPRI, blah, blah, blah. So, like, he's not really saying outright. This, it's, he's just saying this is what people believe. Believed, yeah. So, um, Man, he, like, okay, let's just say, if, if Glenn's completely innocent, he is really getting the shit end of the yeah, stick here. I know, because people I are know. like, you murdered this person, you attacked this person, you're also this creepy porn man. Like, Yeah. The porn man was yeah. also... I'm actually not sure if he's talking about the porn man at this point, or if he's talking about, like, Glenn Fryer, that people believed he was a porn man, but he said he was apparently a regular at Stanley Variety, where Jacqueline Dunleavy yes. worked, right? Yeah. Um, he does say that the police obtained a search warrant to search the porn man's home, and that the pictures and the jars were found, um, but that they were just confiscated, and, like, that he was given sort of, like, a warning. So, if they were confiscated, did anybody test the feces? I don't i don't know because again this is all this is all sort of like a rumor mill and vanessa brown is saying too in some of this stuff she's like if it's in police reports i don't have access to those no so i can't say for sure but the 1992 articles were based on like unnamed sources okay so and she contacted nick prawn as well okay to try and ask him and like he I think it was, it, it sounds to me a bit like a game of telephone. Yeah. Okay. Where it's like a source from a source from a source, right? Yeah. So she w- she was just saying in her book, she's like, I couldn't substantiate any of this. Okay. All right. Um, uh, yeah. So he was just given a stern warning because child pornography laws weren't even created until 1993. Okay. I'm going to throw up everywhere. Yeah. 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 And yeah. So okay. there technically wasn't anything illegal about having them. They were just like this Ugh. is they were just like this is gross. Don't let this happen again. Like, but we can't arrest you for it, which is st- anyways. If this happened again, this is all a rumor. Um he then says that the suspected porn man was arrested for the attack on Betty Harris. So like he does say like again, this is Glenn Fryer that people are suspecting he was. Yeah. Um um, but then he also said, oh, he also says that there were reported sightings of the porn man continuing into 1971 and later, even after Glenn Fryer had moved away. And then he goes on to say that Glenn Fryer was likely not the porn man after all. The legends and newspaper articles about what was apparently found in Glenn's house were never corroborated by Dennis's notes or the trial transcripts. Okay. So it does sound like it sounds like there was a dude like doing this and mm-hmm. there were rumors and reports, but then maybe a rumor turns into this, turns into a story, turns into, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, it, it just spirals. wasn't. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. um, the last thing I'll go over quickly is just, like I said, Michael Armfield's book is a lot more of like an analysis, like mm-hmm. from a criminological perspective. So I, 
as I mentioned previously, took most of my information from the Forest City Killer, but he still has some some tidbits that I just kind of wanted to throw in there as yeah. as far as his analysis of this of this case, of the Jackie English case. So one thing that I found interesting that I think we've maybe heard before is that nursing, modeling, and waitressing are the three highest risk jobs for females, all three being the most overrepresented categories of victims. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. I think that's something I've maybe heard before, like, in, like podcasts about who was the one that killed all the nurses was that richard speck yes yeah like something like that in the one hit yes yeah yeah like something i feel like a podcast like talking about that or someone said like nurses were definitely overrepresented i know waitresses are as well modeling doesn't surprise me i think like yeah yeah anyways just something like he was just saying that jackie english was like she was a waitress so she fit into that category although witness accounts of the make and color of the car vary greatly most accounts agreed that jackie got into the back seat from the passenger side indicating that it is highly possible that there was more than one person in the front of the car yeah well because like yeah why why would you get into the back seat yeah if it was yeah absolutely yeah Michael, there'd, there'd be no reason for it, yeah. Michael Arnfield compares Jackie English's killer to the likes of the Zodiac killer, saying that even Dennis Alsop couldn't have foreseen that her killer would be so cunning as to use the authorities' own jurisdictional policies against them. Um, because, again, if we're believing that some of these cases are connected, not all of them were in the same jurisdiction, right? Yeah. And back in the 60s, no one was communicating yeah, with each other, right? Yeah, sites are, like, out of jurisdiction, everything. Exactly. Like, Take, murdering someone here and then taking them to another yeah. and knowing, being aware of where those jurisdictional lines yeah. are yeah. is that, something that, that... almost points to law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. It's just, like, yeah. He that's... was also someone who reveled in taunting the police, just like the Zodiac Killer did, mm-hmm. with the displays of Jackie's clothing and shoes found strewn about and the belongings of her purse left to be found just a yeah. few steps from her and previous home. And then to also have her previous home burnt to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you, if that is something that's connected, right? If that's a right? message, like, then that's a message. Is crazy. Yeah. Um, he also points out that the calls made to Betty Harrison are indications of scatologia, okay. which is um, arousal and empowerment obtained by anonymously making obscene or frightening phone calls, usually repeated to unsuspecting victims. He said it is now known today as a preparatory paraphilia that has been linked to exhibitionism, pedophilia, and necrophilia, as well as violent stalker-like behavior. Necrophilia. Interesting. Yeah. I know. Especially since the phone caller was saying, I like to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. He was saying, like, I like to, yeah, I like to fuck women when they're dead. Like, Interesting. Yeah. Dennis Alsop wrote to the OPP general headquarter in Toronto around the time of, like, the Jackie English investigation, quickly realizing that they did not have the manpower to solve the cases that were quickly piling up. Um, Cases he believed had some significant connections. He pled with them to send reinforcements or to help him create a task force. In his report, he said, if one can believe any of these deaths are related to the English murder, coupled with the manner of the attack on Mrs. Harrison, one can only conclude that in all probability, we are searching for some form of sexual psychopath or psychopaths, plural. Yep. Okay. And this just speaks to like, just Dennis's, like he was just way beyond his years as a detective. 
both of these terms, psychopath and sexual psychopath, were incredibly new. Nobody was using them. Um, police, like most detectives, were not freely labeling people as psychopaths or no. sexual psychopaths like the way that we do now. Yeah. Um, the term serial killer was not being used yet, not until the no. 70s. But Dennis knew that the people perpetrating these crimes had likely done it before and would definitely do it again. Yeah. So again, he was basically saying, I think they're serial killers without saying the term serial killer. Yeah. His letter should have been extremely alarming to the OPP headquarters, but his pleading was met with silence. That's embarrassing for... It wasn't even... I don't even think yeah. it was responded to. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. that's an embarrassment. Yeah. yeah. Dennis, because clearly, like, if he did get those reinforcements or a task force, like, something could have happened. Yeah. And like I said, like, during the investigation, like, 18 men were, like, boots on the ground, 12 to 14 hours a day, 30 days straight, like, exhausted. And it's, like, 18 men actually isn't that many for the caliber of cases that they were dealing with and and the quantity of cases. Yeah, and the amount of information they were getting into, like... Yeah. And when you're that overworked and overexhausted, like, even the best detective is gonna, like, slip up. Of and course. It's not, like, and it's not even, like, a fault of their own. It's just, like, your work to the bone and you might just accidentally miss information. Yeah, especially Whereas when you're you getting, like, probably hundreds of tips a day. Because, again, Jackie English, people knew her. She was popular. She had lots yeah. of friends. Like, she worked at two jobs with yeah. different people. Like, they were getting so many tips. And they, you have to follow up on every, everything. Because everything, one of them could be important. Mm-hmm. But, like, 99% of them are kind of a waste of time because... They're not important, but you have to do it anyway. So you need manpower for that. Yeah. Um, But basically, Dennis would push forward alone, working many of these cases spread across various jurisdictions off the clock in the late hours of the night for the rest of his life. Um, And yeah, there is a part in Michael Armfield's book where he sort of talks about, he calls it like critical mass, which is a term used in physics and i won't even try to explain it because i'm not going to get it right but in applied to like sociology he basically says in this context there were criminals that london was a hotbed for these types of criminals and that he gives the example of like when you watch on tv when like police do like a perp walk of like a guy walking in handcuffs or like you know, showing them, taking him to prison and stuff. And they started to use that in media as, like, a deterrence. Like, look at all the criminals we're catching. So, like, if you're a criminal, we're going to catch you kind of thing. Yeah. But he's saying in a time like this, where they're not being caught, it sort of sends the opposite message. And that there's this sort of, like, symbiotic process where, like, even if one of them was caught, another one would fill the role. Because of the setting and the context of London at the yeah. time, um, he said that, like, yeah, basically, like, it would, it it sends the message that, like, you're unlikely to get caught if you come to London and perpetrate these crimes because yeah. no one's being caught here. Yeah. Um, and so he kind of describes it like that as far as just why, a reason why these things might have been escalating so quickly yeah. and so many of them occurring. Yeah. Makes and sense. the police couldn't just couldn't catch them like yeah that's the painful part is that like dennis couldn't do it alone a lot of other people weren't working these cases like after they had gone cold a lot of people were like okay well i'll move on to something else yeah right so if you have one dude working these cold cases on his own it's not gonna get outside of his regular work hours yeah i mean like there's only so much you can do so um oh the last part i was gonna say is that this was in murder city but 
It says on a weeknight in August 1970, a phone call came to Dennis's house around 8 p.m. His 15-year-old daughter Liz picked up to someone breathing on the other line. After saying hello a few times, she was met with a voice saying, you're next, and then hung up. And I'm sorry, this is Dennis Elsob's daughter? Yeah. Okay. Um, Dennis apparently put an intermittent police wiretap on his home phone for several years after that. Nothing else came through? Oh, uh, there is, in both books, I think they say that he was harassed for years. Yeah. Okay. I think he received... I'm not shocked. Like, because... I think... I don't think it was to the extent of, like, Betty Harrison, but, like, yeah, he definitely received phone calls. Yeah. Hmm. That's from people that he very well was like, these could be, these could be murderers that I'm, yeah. that, that I'm chasing, that, that I'm are seconds calling away me. from catching and they know it and I don't realize yeah. how close I am. And he had a 15 year old daughter at that time. That's, like that's, you're investigating these murders of these children that, that are, are like, like the, the same, same age, age as your daughter. Yeah. That's so fuck. That's probably honestly just like what pushed him even harder. Honestly. I think that's part of it. I think that's the thing is that uh, how could it not? Yeah. How could it not motivate you? Where you're like, what if this was my yeah my kid lying here? Yeah. Yeah. This. Ah, this is and crazy. I know. I know. Like I can't. Even after I went through all of it, I just went through all of this whole case, and I still can't wrap my head around it. I only have one question, and maybe you have the answer, maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. Do David and Rick, the brothers, mm-hmm. do they know Glenn? Is there any connection between David and Rick to Glenn or vice versa, whatever? Not that I came across. Okay. Not that I don't think any of, like, anyone came across. The only connection would be, like, the the connection of, like, David dating Jackie, Jackie being, being friends with Marilyn, and Marilyn knowing Glenn. Okay. But I didn't read about any sort of connection directly between, between David, the, Rick, the guys. and Glenn. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's something I'd be curious to like look into. I know, but you see what I mean? There's so many possibilities. Yeah. Like that's there's the thing. so many. Yeah. There's so many characters in this plot that could have either done it or knows who has, has yeah. done it or ha- played a role in doing it. Yeah. <sighs> or it's like. I'm stressed. What? Out. It was a stranger? It just seems unlikely to me. Yeah. Like at this point, it's just kind of like, fuck, like, yeah, it would be such a wild percentage mm-hmm. if it happened to be a stranger. Like it would yeah. just be like a point zero zero one. Like it's so weird. Well, there was even like a thing that Marilyn had said in one of her like tellings of like when the American guys picked them up and hitched, like they hitched a ride home. And then. When Jackie was like, yeah, come in tomorrow and I'll give you a hot dog. And then, like, she said that she talked to Jackie after and she was like, Marilyn's like, I don't work tomorrow, but do you want me to come in tomorrow and, like, sit with you in case they come in? Like, implying almost that, like, Jackie didn't want them to come. Like, she said that Jackie made a joke, like, I hope they don't come in, actually, though. But I don't think Jackie was actually scared. But at certain points, Marilyn implies that she was. Yeah. But again... maybe that's just, like, Marilyn's interpretation. Yeah, exactly. But again, like... They had just met these guys and we don't, there's, they were from Michigan. So there's no indication that they drove all the way across the border again, just to get a fucking hot dog. No. It's possible. Like maybe they stayed in town, but I don't know. And it does sound like the description of like, you know, if 
like the people sitting in the restaurant seeing Jackie talking to a man like it sounds like the description of that man was older it sounds like the description of the man in the maroon car was maybe older like some people yeah. said he was 18 to 22 and then other people said he was like closer to 30 yeah. like it's hard because again witness accounts are different All over the because place. everyone just sees different information your brain processes information differently than someone else's does right yeah. so to me that guy could look 22 and to someone else they're like he looks 32 yeah yeah you know like who knows mm. in the car it could be dark blue it could be aquamarine it could be white it could be black it could be red like it, at night it could look yeah it, yeah a red, a red car at night could look dark yeah right yeah this is yeah i didn't like this one bit I hated every minute of it. I understand. I'm very I understand. frustrated. I know. I it. just really do hope one day there's an answer. I hope so too. I hope so too. Like, and just for anyone um, who you know is in the area, anyone who's from London or you know just is in the area, they do. Anne English does a walk for Jackie every year. Okay. On October fourth. Oh, okay, cool. Um, okay. And they, and Vanessa Brown talks about, like, going to this walk, like, when she, when she first came in contact with Anne English. And, uh, yeah, so they walk from where the Metropolitan used to be, like, okay. that parking lot, and they just walk up the overpass to where Jackie was last seen. Okay. And, and walk, walk back and commemorate her. Um, I guess it's been, I don't know how long it's been going on, but, like, they do it every year. And I think it's been going on for a long time. But there are still a lot of people out there that want answers, that are searching for answers. Rightfully so. And who knows? Yeah. It could always, again, it can always it can happen. It always happen. DNA solves yeah. cases all the time. And we have DNA in this case, which is amazing, right? Yeah. Because there are loads of cases that don't. Yeah. That things weren't stored properly or DNA evidence was contaminated. Like, we have DNA samples. Yeah. Everyone should just go case. submit your DNA and ask for it to be checked out against us. We're just going to find out. We're just going to yeah, do a quick little check. Yeah, I know. Like that familiar <laughs> DNA connection, it's right? It's a Where huge it's like, thing. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Golden State Killer. Yeah. It happens. And yeah, I just really hope it happens for this one that we can finally get an answer. Yeah. And again, this isn't necessarily over as far as like our theorizing about this case because... I'm going through all of the cases before I actually get into, like, Vanessa Brown has a theory. We'll get there. Yes. She has a theory. And I it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, so we're going to have probably, like, a whole episode to discuss it at the end. At the very least. And I'm going to yeah. have, like, I already have a document going, like, with all the details from yeah. some of these cases that could maybe be connected and, like, cars and, like, yeah. a guy in a green jacket. There was also a guy spotted in a green jacket around the frankie jensen murder so like there's these things right like all these yeah. little pieces so we'll get there but so we're not over yeah. it's not done with jackie english yet okay and and like i said who knows uh, i hope i hope for her family we're, we're gonna get answers soon. and for the london community that like there will be answers mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i think it's gonna happen i feel good i feel good that we're gonna find some answers soon I hope so. I don't know how soon exactly, but I, f I feel like, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I know nothing. I, I after <laughs> I these know. two episodes, I, I feel officially like I can confidently nothing. say I know nothing and I don't have a brain anymore. It's mush. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's out of here. It's gone. It's just empty in there. So on that note, 
we'll just leave you there. Yeah. Sign up to be super cool and join our cult of extremely awesome people who love true crime at www.patreon.com slash how to not get killed. And if you ever want to chat and connect with us, you can send us an email to how to not get killed at gmail.com. Or you can DM us or comment on our posts on Instagram at how to not get killed. And you can follow us on Twitter at H2NGK. You can also check out our website and shop our merch at www.howtonotgetkilled.com. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks, guys. And keep it sleazy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Always. We always want you to keep it sleazy. Yeah, super sleazy. The sleaziest. All right, okay, bye, guys. See ya.